Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Race IndyCar podcast for 2024. We hope you had a happy holiday season, had a great time at home, and now we're back with some IndyCar content for you. So coming up on today's show, we have an in-depth interview with David Malukas of Arrow McLaren, and we also have the leftover listeners' questions that we need to get through from our tech special, uh, which happened just before Christmas. So if you've not listened to that yet, definitely go back. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to our tech special with listeners' questions. We went into dampers, aerodynamics, uh, lots of different stuff to do with car setup. And uh, we had Charlie Ping for that, uh, a race engineer last year at Huncos. And also, of course, J.R. Hildebrand, who will be back through 2024 to break down all of the IndyCar races with us. So without further ado, we're going to head over and speak to David Malukas, who spoke to us just before Christmas about his adaptation at Aaron McLaren. A little bit about the pressures that are going to be on him as a, as a McLaren driver now and, and what it means to, to take a seat that was linked to Alex Polo for so long. Uh, and also a little bit about his Photoshop skills and embarrassing me as well. So without further ado, we'll head over. David Lucas, welcome back to the Race IndyCar podcast. Thank you for interrupting your breakfast to join us. And uh, yeah, Lil Dave on the podcast. Is that <laughs> going to be a thing this year? Are you keeping that going into the into the McLaren time? Or are, are you kind of parking that for a little bit? Or what's the situation going to be there? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and I would stop eating my breakfast anytime for you. <laughs> um, now, <laughs> from the from the little Dave standpoint, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. Um, I definitely would like to move past it. But the kind of the, the deal that I made with myself is I can move past it once I get my first win. So hopefully sooner than later, we can get that done with uh, with the Aero McLaren team and I can move past the name. Yeah, for sure. I guess, um, have you made any kind of bets with Zach or have you discussed anything with him? Because that's always seems to be like a good topic of like things that you have to ask a McLaren driver when they come into into McLaren because you never know what kind of uh, cool things they've been discussing with Zach and what they might end up doing. <laughs> yeah, so initially like Zach is Zach is awesome man. He's like he like as soon as we 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 first spoke it's almost like he was like just like a bro. He's like, "Hey man, what's up?" like super chill. I was like, "Wow, this, this is like this is actually like really cool. I got super comfortable cuz to start I was like, "All right, here we go. Zach Brown. Okay, I got to get all ready, you know, get all stressed like what am I going to say?" And then he came in and it was just super chill, super awesome guy. Um and yeah, from from our standpoint, we've we've talked a little bit, um especially at velocity as well. Um so that hasn't, we haven't made any bets yet, but we have been uh, discussing things that he wants <laughs> he wants me to talk to him about and uh, some some goals for the season and stuff. So still need to get that talk through to him. Yeah, awesome. Did you um did you enjoy Velocity? Was uh what what kind of stuff are you driving and what what obviously we saw bits of like stuff on social media, but you don't get to see like kind of everything you were doing. So what was what were the kind of cool stuff that you were getting up to there? Oh, Velocity was incredible. Um, so we I ended up driving uh, James Hunt's car and uh, also Bruce's car. Really, I mean, for me, it, it took a minute to st- to get going because I can't remember the last time I've you know had a. <laughs> 
<laughs> something that wasn't paddle shifters. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I was like, this is actually like <laughs> kind of good, like refreshing my memory. Um, just in the new age of motorsport, everything's just paddle shifts. So yeah, for sure. Uh, it took me, I'd say, a lap or two to to kind of get it down. But once I did, it's just it's so much fun. I mean, it's there's so much going on, going to the corners, and it's like a workout, man. I, we did like only six laps, I think it was, and I was like already like pretty worn out. So, but I had a lot of fun, really cool, and also it was actually my first time at Sonoma, so got to experience that. Um, and just the whole like event was it was amazing. A lot of cool cars, really great people. I met so many people. Um, and from the fan side of things, I, I was expecting the fan show, up, but it was also incredible. Um, I personally thought they were all there for for Lando, but I, a lot of them just <laughs> knew me, and I'm like, wow, like I'm I'm new to the to the Aero McLaren side of things, and you know everybody kind of already knows me, so it was really cool. I had a good time, warm welcoming, and also spent more time with the with everybody from the Aero McLaren crew. Uh, from content wise and just building chemistry with the team and it's a really good team i'm so happy to be here and uh yeah it's going to be a really good season i know you're big into your gaming so did you get any game in time with with lando he's obviously big into his uh his gaming as well oh i did it man that guy is a superstar <laughs> I, <laughs> I i i met him and and we spoke but man his his schedule was definitely uh off the charts and uh <laughs> And he can't he can't go anywhere that I feel almost kind of bad. He can't go anywhere without being absolutely mobbed and getting uh oh man, there was just so many people. It was it was crazy. The uh from from that side, the Lando side, just experiencing that from I'm like, wow, that is uh that is <laughs> that is crazy. He has a big fan base. So uh, but no, so I didn't get any of that. Um but for myself, I, I definitely got my gaming in. You know, I got my 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 had my little handheld to go <laughs> to go kind of beast, and I ended up playing a few games of the new FIFA uh, before I went to bed at Velocity. So I've I've been getting my gaming in. Very very good. I guess um, let's talk a little bit about your move then, obviously, and uh, heading over to McLaren. What's the what have you kind of noticed as the biggest uh, things that have changed so far? I mean, apart from a bit of a longer drive to work, I guess. Um, what have been the big things that have kind of hit you uh, initially here? So it is a lot more people um, that I uh, than I am used to. So it's just trying to get, first of all, still figure out. I try to get all the names and everybody sorted. Uh, <laughs> once I actually move to Indy and I'm there at the shop more often, I will actually be able to, you know, be there and be with everybody. But um, all in all, though, all positives. Uh, it, the, the biggest change is just unlimited resources and trying to figure out how to utilize them, my ability. Um, and I feel like, with having TK, that's kind of been from from my side where I'm going to talk to him about and discuss things with him on how I can utilize everything to the best of my ability and use everything that the McLaren people are giving me to, you know, for me to to use when when the season starts. So that's kind of the whole deal. And a lot of it's going to start once I actually get down there, which is just uh, about another week now. Um, so yeah, that's kind of just been the big difference is just, man, it's it's a big change. You have whatever you would want, whatever you think about that you would need. Aaron McLaren, they're going to do it for you, and they're going to agree. So that's uh, that's kind of the, the big change in needing to make sure I can I can utilize that to the best of my ability. For sure, I guess the resources are something that anyone would notice if they they went into McLaren. I think I saw. Did you go to the MTC uh, not long after you'd signed? And how how was that called kind of whole experience? Because that must have been, uh, I guess, a bit of a pinch me moment. Um, you know, as a seeing yourself as a McLaren driver, but actually going to the MTC and seeing how that whole place operates must be a, a big moment as in a in a kind of driver's career. 
Okay, so so I'm gonna, so I haven't gone there yet. And the the what you're talking okay, about. Okay, sorry. No, no, but what you're talking about, I posted on my Instagram. I just photoshopped myself in the MTC. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, it's so nice in here. Uh but then uh <laughs> but then Laura was like, okay, no, we will we're gonna take you to the MTC. Don't don't worry. But I just thought it was like a funny little joke. But um I am very excited to go see the MTC and I can't wait to go see it. But yeah, that was just a little little joke from my side. Well, you've totally fooled me. You totally fooled me and made me look like an idiot on my own podcast. So thank you for that. That's no, no, uh, that's quite an achievement. You were the only one. I was trying to make sure that I didn't add like I added a little bit of shadows, but I didn't want to add too much to make it too because <laughs> The first, the first iteration, dude, it looked like I was there. I'm like, this is gonna. I can't post this because people won't even see the joke. So, <laughs> to, yeah. So I've just been, um, you know, I guess expanding my um, photoshopping skills to to make better memes and, and jokes and stuff. So. <laughs> I guess on the on the resourcing, that must be. I guess, especially on the IndyCar side, one of the most noticeable things, because I guess, at least at the moment, the McLaren shop in Indy is not like night and day difference to, to Coins Place in terms of the, the size and stuff, like the actual size of the buildings and all that kind of stuff, because obviously McLaren's looking at, at moving to a bigger shop in, in a few years' time and, and trying to expand in, in the kind of literal sense. But at least in terms of the number of people and the kind of resources, that must have been like like you kind of alluded to the biggest kind of difference between you know coming from a, a bit of a smaller team and then coming up to a bigger team but like McLaren's quite unusual in an IndyCar sense in the sense that the the buildings are kind of the same size but the resources and all of the people is obviously a lot more going on yeah it's definitely very tight fit at the at the current moment at the at the current shop but <laughs> from from my side I, I guess it it, it kind of helps in a sense because now I'm going to learn everybody and I don't have to go like too far <laughs> to everybody's stations to kind of talk and, and figure things out before they go they head to the new place but <laughs> it's just been yeah like i said although the, the the shop itself is small the resources of the people are not and it is very i mean it's just like there's so much man like anything that you could ever possibly imagine from you know looking at past races or past data or different ideas that they come up with like they've already thought about it they already have it and they could just give it to you so it's it's just a lot and i'm actually super excited that once i move in to to indy i'll actually be able to spend the off season you know looking through all this this data and all this stuff to get ready for when the new season starts awesome have you kind of got a now you're in the shop and you're speaking to the team and you're kind of a bit more settled in have you kind of got a vibe of of what mclaren saw in you and why they wanted to bring you into this enormous team because I guess from a fan's perspective, someone listening to the podcast, they've obviously been impressed with some of your performances at, at Dale Coin before, but it's hard for anyone on the outside that isn't you or the coin team to kind of see the data and, and what you're kind of doing in the car and what are behind some of those performances that maybe aren't like amazing on a piece of paper, but are, have actually been really good performances from your perspective. And it doesn't necessarily always kind of show up on a piece of paper. So uh, I guess... Can you give us a bit of insight into how it's felt coming into McLaren and, and maybe a vibe of what they really saw in you and what they were looking forward to kind of having you, your your attributes, what they were kind of looking forward to having you in the team for? Uh, that's a tough question. I mean, to, to talk about, you know, talk about myself in, in some ways, but, you know, going into it, at least what I, I feel like I'm trying to bring is I'm trying to bring, um, of, of course, performance. You want it to be there. And I think being a young gun, I'm going to try to do my absolute best and be at the shop as much as I can. To, to make sure I can learn and 
to kind of be at the, the level that they would want me to be. And I'll, I'm going to be trying my absolute best to stay here. You know, it's like whatever you can imagine of doing, I will be doing it, spending every single moment that I can once I get down there to make sure that I'm ready and prepared for when the season starts. Um, but I also think from, you know, just a chemistry standpoint and just being with the team, I thoroughly just, I think they're just, everybody's just really good people. And I love to just hang out and be with them. And I feel like that's one of the most important things when you go to a team at the end of the day, you want to make sure everybody's having fun and the chemistry is there because yes, everybody wants to win, but it's, it's kind of tough in a sense that if the relationships aren't really there, then it's going to be a tougher task to get that done. And I think from my side, it's kind of just, at least that's what I want to bring is a balance between, you know, having that competitiveness, but also very much being on the the family oriented side where the team is just a giant family and we all have the same goal in mind and we're all going to do it in the, the most epic way possible and <laughs> have a blast doing it. So that's kind of <laughs> going to be what I'm trying to bring in. Yeah, for sure. I guess obviously it's it's clear that they've they've signed you and put you in their car. So they obviously see a lot in you and, and are looking forward to having you in the team. And, and you've talked already a bit about the the resources of the team, some of the, you know, the positives that, that come with, um, you know, being a McLaren driver and also being a Velocity and all the fans and stuff. I, I guess you get a very, a very real kind of understanding of how big McLaren's fan base are when you go to somewhere like Sonoma and the, pace, the place is basically full of uh, papaya t-shirts and stuff like that. How, how are you approaching the kind of the, the the pressure element of that? Are you feeling any of any of that kind of pressure going into your into your first year? And, and just from a mindset point of view, how are you approaching that? Because I guess that seat you you're in now has been linked to people like Alex Pillow and another champions in the series as well. And I'm sure there's lots of drivers in the paddock who would who would love to be driving the car you're driving. So how are you kind of approaching that from a you know a pressure standpoint and a, just looking at at 2024 and what you do on track? How do you kind of cope with all of that? Oh, of course, I, I mean to start, you know, it's like immediately, you know, like I guess my first moment where I was like, okay, things are definitely different is when I didn't call papaya papaya and i said it was orange <laughs> uh, so it was like immediately they're like oh nope that's nope and so it's <laughs> like i really had to kind of sit down and, and look at you know the rules and how things are going to be changing and just from a whole marketing standpoint on how you know i'm gonna have to to change myself and and kind of really connect and, and be with the team properly uh but honestly it, it's i've already gotten very comfortable on that side of the, the the things but from a racing perspective you know going into of course i was nervous but Right off the bat, it kind of goes both ways. And from Aaron McLaren's side, they've immediately put me in the car for for hybrid testing. They are immediately taking me to all these events. They, you know, are already bringing me into the shop. There's like, it, they're not really making me feel like that, you know, oh, I was just kind of like a, some sort of like last minute option or that I don't, you know, belong there. Like they very much trust me and they they see that they're my talent. And from my side, it feels very good that they're welcoming me with, you know, not just open arms, but like a giant hug <laughs> and like, I'm ready to, to, to go in there. And and for my side, it gives me that confidence that, Hey, you know, this team trusts me and they know my talents and make sure that I'm going to try my absolute best for my side. So, you know, that it can show and we get that performance as a team. So it's for both sides. It's been very good so far and I'm very excited. And for all the other drivers that want that seat, I mean, I'm going to be trying so hard to make sure that I'm going to be here and be a part of this team because I love it here. And I, can I do not see myself being anywhere else other than the papaya family. For sure. 
I guess what what do you kind of think will be like enough to keep that seat? You know, in terms of, uh, I know you're not a guy who necessarily likes to put numbers on things or you know go into a season and say like I want you know 15 top tens or you know something silly like that. But what what do you what what are you kind of looking to achieve next year from a, a realistic standpoint? You know, if we if we were talking, I always like to ask this question. If we were talking at the end of next season, you know, what would a happy David Lucas look like, and and what would be a realistic expectation? Do you think in order to impress? Or, or not necessarily impress in order to satisfy yourself and and the team as well. Well, Aaron McLaren, obviously the the main goal is we need to be competitive and they need to be at the at the top, right? And the main goal right now, and looking at previous seasons, is trying to compete with with Penske and Chip. And I'm very much going to be also involved in that. And I think that's going to be the same goals. And yeah, I mean, we need to we need to win. We need to secure championships, and we need to be there. And from my side, it's going to be obviously very tough ask and a tough goal, but that's kind of what it's going to have to be um, being a part of this team. And I'm very excited because that's ho- has always been my goal ever since, you know, I joined the IndyCar paddock and to be a part of Aaron McLaren, the team that also has the same goals, we can both uh, work together on achieving that. So it's very high, but it's, it's kind of goals that we need to hit. And coming from uh, a McLaren team standpoint, I think that would obviously very clearly show that if the competitiveness is there and I could compete, then they'll be very much enough to keep the seat. Well, I know you've got high expectations of yourself, so having those high expectations isn't going to be nothing nothing new for you. Uh, I guess I'm kind of interested, you mentioned being in the car, and uh, I'm kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to speak for you, I'm guessing you didn't learn uh, an enormous amount by the amount of testing you've done so far, but what's your kind of vibe and, and feeling about how you might adapt to this car and, and how you might be able to extract the maximum from it? I know it's a it's a car that's you know, capable of extreme pace. We've seen, um, you know, Pato, especially over the past few years, deliver some some pretty uh, amazing performances. But I know going into any IndyCar team, um, you know, appro- approaching a new car with a new style can be can be difficult. You sometimes need to be adaptable and, and be able to adapt to different driving styles, different setups and, and stuff like that. So what what's your vibe uh, e- either in the car or, or at least uh, looking at the data and, and kind of getting a vibe from that? How do you feel about how you might be able to gel with this car moving forward? Yeah, from from the car standpoint, it's the testing has been minimal, um, but it's been you know we're starting to work towards you know from what I want with the car and and honestly, right off the bat, it's been it's been very smooth and it's been very strong, um, you know. And I've been working with uh, different engineers from Aaron McLaren's side and been uh, been working on something that you know I would like and kind of working with them and kind of learning the lingo of of how we talk. Um, so it's been it was still a work in progress, but um, I don't think it's going to take very long at all, especially before the season starts. I think we're going to have a rough idea of where we want to be. And that's also not the one side that is, you know, is very helpful, but it's also having the the data standpoints of Alexander Rossi and Pato Award, who are both, I think, very different in their driving styles. Um, but from my side, it's it's like perfect because I get to look at both of their data and kind of add it to, to my style and, and to learn to get better because at the end of the day, I'm still 22 and have a lot of room to, to learn. So for my side, it's been uh it's been really good. And I think from from a car standpoint, we're right about there where we want the, the setup to be. Awesome. I guess uh, I'm kind of interested in how, how excited you are for the five hundred. I mean any driver's always excited for the for the five hundred, but I'm guessing you've kind of you've probably already watched last year's event back a few times already anyway. And uh I, I guess seeing how competitive McLaren were last year and knowing how much work kind of goes into a five hundred car at somewhere like McLaren um obviously they will have been starting work on the on the 2024 car pretty much immediately after the 2023 race finished so uh, I guess even just watching you know some of the moves that Pato was making and seeing 
Pato and Felix, especially, um, you know, really at the sharp end, fighting for the for the victory in that race, even even towards the end. Um, I'm guessing a young driver like yourself is uh, pretty excited about the prospect of that. Oh, of course, I did the uh, we did the hybrid test there, <laughs> and I was able to already get a few laps of their oval car. And uh, yeah, let me just say it's really good. It is re- it is really really <laughs> good, and it is great from a driver's standpoint because you just feel so confident. And you also just, I mean, it's, no, I'm excited, especially after that test. I was like, wow, this is great. I mean, they came in and they're like, all right, so what do you want with the step? I was like, uh, I don't know, guys, this thing is beautiful. It's like, it's so awesome. Like, let's just <laughs> just refuel and let's go out again. Cause yeah, I love it. It's, it's amazing. And in traffic, not in traffic. I'm like, guys, this is just, I love it. I'm like, it's so good. It's <laughs> like, okay, let me really focus to try to nitpick something. Nope. Nothing. It's perfect. So that's kind of how my experience went. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess already fans will have seen, you know, Gateway is always the one that comes up because you've done so well there, um, you know, in the past and, and had some really strong results there. I think people, you know, see you being very strong on ovals. So I guess they have that expectation of you, you know, potentially doing well on, on the ovals and stuff like that. But I think maybe you're, well, definitely your kind of uh, road course and street course performances have probably gone a little bit under the radar as well. And uh, I guess maybe that's a, I don't know if it's maybe a target you can speak about this but is is it something you you've noticed that people maybe focus on your kind of overall performances a little bit more than the other stuff and maybe it's like a bit of a target for you to try and um make a bit more of a name for yourself let's say on on the street and road courses next season 100 uh, and that's from from my side is where I feel like I, I really want to work on um ovals I've managed to kind yeah. of click with them and, and find them out and I think from road courses the actual performances of the races have been good i think it's just the qualifying that's kind of been lacking from my side just trying to extract the absolute maximum out of the car just with the the short time that you really have on on alternates and just trying to you know time that one lap make sure pressures are there and brake temps are there and just getting it all down for that one lap i think that's kind of where it's been originating from so that's the one area that i i really want to kind of work on and i've already been trying very much on the sim um you know, on the simulator here at home or or the one with Chevy, it's been kind of trying to do as many Q sims as I can. Um, so from any, and even let alone, it doesn't even have to be an Indy car or anything. I mean, I could go on iRacing, R Factor, whatever. I just want to kind of put it in the sense that like I have one lap and I need to like do the best possible time that I can. And then I kind of just keep doing trial and error against myself. And that's something that I've been doing season and we'll be doing until the season starts to just try to get the absolute maximum when the time matters most. I definitely encourage any people listening to the podcast who maybe think that way that you're better on ovals to go and have a look at some of the some of some of your qualifying performances and ones that maybe have gone under the radar a little bit. You just speaking about simulators, you've just made me kind of think about the the whole uh, Honda Chevrolet thing. And I know you you don't have like 15 years of IndyCar experience, and maybe the the differences aren't as massive to you as there would be to someone who's been around. Um, you know, someone like Honda for for a really long time and then switched to Chevrolet. But are there any kind of immediate differences you've noticed or um, anything that, that have been kind of like positive or negative for you in terms of the, the changeover so far? What, what have you kind of felt so far? Yeah, well, I mean, I, going into it, everybody was saying it was going to be a, a big change, but honestly, they're, they're very similar. I think mm. it's they've because they've been working with this engine for such a long time. I feel like they've they've both been able to find the, the absolute maximum. Um, and there's been, you know, a, a few differences, but you know, with a few changes on pedal maps and just working with the Chevy guys, I've been able to to get a setup that I very much enjoy and feels very similar to what I've been used to when I was uh, with Honda. So, I don't think the 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 big 
massive differences that everybody keeps saying with all these rumors are, are actually true. I, I tested both pretty much back to back. I mean, the, the hybrid test was soon after, uh, you know, the last race at Laguna and yeah, I, it's very, very minimal difference, nothing crazy at all. So it's probably blown out of proportion a little bit just by it being such a topic when a driver moves from one to the other and people just being interested in it. And there is probably a subtle difference, but just not as big as what people kind of make out when it's such a, a big talking point, I guess. Anyway, David Lucas, thank you so much for joining us on the Race IndyCar podcast. We'll let you go and eat your breakfast. Um, little day of TBC. There's no exclusive there. We don't know if that's going to be moving forward, but we'll keep an eye out on that and uh, would encourage anyone looking for some festive spirit to go and have a look at uh, Aaron McLaren's socials for the picture that you took with Alexander Rossi and, and Pato Ward in front of the Christmas tree. That must have been a lot of fun to to do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's great. And I love working with the content team. Rossi and, and Pato are like always against everything. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. This is content. This is hilarious. Let's do it. And like, no, I don't want to do it. I was like, come on, this is, it's fine. People are going to love this. And even if they don't, it's still content. It's great. <laughs> You're giving me proper dad vibes with the the kind of diamond print sweatshirt that you had going on there. That's pretty cool. Was that one from your own oh, collection I, I, or was that was that provided no, for you? No, no, no. No, everything was provided. <laughs> I, I didn't have any of that stuff. <laughs> awesome. Well, David, best of luck with your adaptation at Aaron McLaren. I'm sure we'll we'll speak to you in the new year. But thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you very much for having me and happy holidays. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. All right, welcome back. Just before Christmas, we did a tech special listeners questions episode, which if you've not listened to, then pause now and go back and listen to that because JR and I and a special guest who I'll introduce in a minute went through some of your questions from social media, from email. And uh, yeah, we talked a lot about different areas of IndyCar tech, uh, dampers, aerodynamics, stuff like that. And we're going to get into that a little bit more because we've got Charlie Ping back with us. Hi, Charlie. Hope you had a nice holidays and thanks for joining us again. We've got some leftover questions from our tech special. So I've re-enlisted you um, to come and work for us again. So thank you very much for that. We appreciate your time and uh, popping in after a, a busy holiday period. Yeah, for sure. Getting ready for Daytona is always makes it for hectic holidays. So, but yeah, good to be back. 
there's no such thing as holidays in motorsport. We all know that. So, yeah, I guess we'll just get into it because we've got um, we've got Marty Triano, one of the um, OG followers of the pod, known very well, and uh, is a very good tour guide. If anyone knows him, tap him up for some of his local tours in Toronto. But he's messaged us asking about Thermal Club. I know that was where um, Agustin made his uh, debut last year while while you were working with him. Um, uh, Marty asks, uh, "Will all the IndyCar teams go?" Yes, they will, Marty. I can tell you that. Um, the the risks and the rewards. What can we expect as the track really doesn't resemble any typical IndyCar track that we've seen? What type of setup will the teams be looking for to be successful? Uh, can anything useful be gleaned from the test last year? And will that transfer uh, in terms of the the setup and, and downforce, etc.? I think the from from the teams I've spoke to anyway, the test last year was definitely very helpful. Um, definitely got some some good information from that, especially with it being such a new track. Anytime you can get to a new track and do any sort of testing is always massively helpful for the teams because they've got no data to to lean back on, especially at somewhere like Thermal where there's not even like a lot of like simulated stuff you can do or uh, there's not even that much onboard video or anything you can watch really from thermal there's bits and bobs but because it's such a new venue uh, there's there's very little out there really that you can that you can kind of use to to adapt to it uh, charlie i'm interested to get your take on the setup point of view because i guess it's kind of thermal's kind of a weird track because it's kind of like it's been designed as a test track almost because it's got such a different sort of uh, character and profile of all the corners and stuff so uh, I guess when you're setting the car up there it's a massive amount of like compromise and trying not to sort of set the, per- the car perfectly up for one sector and then kind of ruin it for the rest of the lap that's always kind of uh, a tricky thing to manage as a as an engineer isn't it yeah for sure it's it's got a variety of corners um, there's some really high speed corners there there's some slower speed corners so I think it's it's more of a compromised kind of track it's it's definitely interesting to have a race there because you know, we all turned up to the test last year thinking about how can we make this useful for the rest of the season because we're not racing here. And when you go to race somewhere, it, it does change your mentality a little bit because, you know, you, you're not you, – no one was really trying to set lap times there or uh, or set up a car that's going to overtake well or anything like that. You're really just like, okay, well, this corner is kind of like a high-speed corner, like a certain track or or he, this is a slow-speed corner and let's learn about our car setup. So it was a pretty chill test because, well, obviously it was my first time working with Augustine and the team. So that was, it was stressful for that reason. But, uh, you know, I think everyone was sort of look, looking at it as a, an opportunity to really do some science experiments and learn about their basic setups. When you, when you do a pre-event, uh, test at a track that you race at, you're al- always thinking about ultimate pace. And so whether teams approach this race that way or not, I guess remains to be seen because it's not a points race, but I think most of the teams will be in race mode. So you'll be thinking a lot differently about it. Um, so yeah, it's just, a, it's a compromised setup track. I think the, um, you know, the test last year is going to be super helpful to decide, you know, how to, how to set the car up, just having some laps there and having some data, um, but I think the, the biggest concern with thermal, I think is especially racing is the, is the environment that it's in it's extremely sandy. And I think we got really lucky when we tested there because it, it wasn't windy and the track kind of gripped up. We thought it was going to be really low grip. That's what people told me it was like. Um, but it really wasn't, it was pretty, pretty high grip. It gripped up pretty well. Uh, but if it's windy and that sand's blowing around, it's going to be really slippery and it's going to be different every lap. So I think that's the biggest challenge and the biggest risk sort of uh, because you could end up, you know, having a off track and things like that because of all of a sudden a bunch of sands blown into the apex of a 
high speed corner. So that could be really interesting. I, I think in uh, some of the sports car teams that have run there have told me that happens there quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it's really good. They tested there. I'm sure that the teams will be approaching a little bit differently because they have to race. But if as a spectator, I'd be, I'd be watching the forecast for wind because I think that's going to be the most interesting thing. If it's a windy day, it's going to be pretty wild. For sure. It should equalize the field a little bit as well with, you know, I guess there will be, you know, drivers who haven't tested there before, but um, there'll be, you know, even some of the rookies from recent years won't be at such a disadvantage there. And uh, I guess I got quite a good window into what it's like to come into IndyCar as a rookie and especially an open wheel rookie as well with, with Augustine last year, Charlie, because he, I think if I remember rightly, he was fastest in one of the sectors of the track where there was like high speed corners and then he was quite a bit slower in some of the like the slower speed stuff and it kind of gives a good insight into just how difficult it is like with the the slip of the tire and just approaching like slow speed corners and how difficult that can be for even like a professional driver like Augustin who you know clearly has a lot of car control is a a multi-time champion in a different championship um it's just a different obviously a different car and a different way of driving but he's very experienced in 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 all sorts of different stuff and for him to come in and struggle in in one area but excel so much in another area was like kind of a a really cool insight into what it's like as a even a like a really top driver coming into IndyCar without the experience of of driving that car before it must have been a a really weird test in that sense for him yeah for sure um it was pretty it was pretty interesting to see how you know we didn't know anything I didn't I never worked with him before he'd done one test for the team and um I think it was a bit of a struggle that test so we weren't really sure what to expect and and he was fastest in what was the, I don't know where the start finish is going to be for the race, but the last corner yeah. was super high speed number, the number. And um, he was flat through that corner. And I'm pretty sure he's the only car, the only driver that was flat through that corner because he <laughs> won in that sector. And Callum, I think was P2 or P3 and he wasn't flat. So um, yeah. obviously our cars were pretty good in the high speed, but uh, you could tell, okay, this this guy has some, some balls, basically he's committed, <laughs> uh, which is what you want to see in IndyCar for sure. I do think, you know, talking to him, you know, you might not expect a, a touring car driver to struggle on low speed, but mm. I think what's different is in an aero car, they have to be set up to handle high speed. They have to be stiffly sprung. Um, and so the car is really tuned for medium to high speed corners. And it, it's really kind of a, a not a nice car to drive in <laughs> slow speed. It's way too stiff for the slow speed corners, but it has to be to stay off the ground in the high speed stuff. So I think it is a little bit more of a challenge for a touring car driver to come in and drive a Indy car at slow speed. Cause it just feels kind of like garbage. Basically <laughs> it's not a, it's not a very nice car. You have to get used to it, uh, driving something that's just way too stiff for that type of corner, but it has to handle the whole track. So especially at a place like thermal. So for sure. Let's um let's do the absolute opposite to what we've been talking about, Charlie, and switch to ovals for, for a bit of fun. We've got a question from Kyle Brown. He's at Brown underscore Kyle underscore on Twitter. And he asked, how fine is the line for downforce between close racing and IRL style pack racing? He says, at TMS, the series has been so cautious about pack racing, but this has generally produced boring races. The racing generally seems so far from pack racing. Why not give an extra 20% of downforce? So do you want to start with that, Charlie? And I'll jump in if I can think of anything else to add to it. <laughs> yeah, sure. So when I started, my career was in the IRL and it was all pretty almost all ovals. And um, we had a lot of pack racing. So I'm pretty familiar with that. And it is 
it is scary. I, I hate the pack racing and it's, it's dangerous. So I think, you know, and obviously after uh, Weldon died, there was a lot of um, emphasis on being safe. Maybe they overshot a little bit, but the series has really tried hard to get the balance right. But unfortunately it's really difficult. And the main reason is um, because it's so dependent on conditions. If the, if it's hot or cold, it makes a big difference. If it's a night race or a day race. And a lot of times these regulations are made, at the beginning of the season. So they'll do an off season test usually when it's cold and the track's green and then they'll come up with something. Um, so it's hard. It's pretty difficult. I, I think they have maybe been a little bit conservative, but I also understand why they're that way. Uh, I, the only thing I think they could do, you know, why not give extra 20% downforce? Like, like Kyle said, I think they could have a, a little bit more leeway on the race weekend to determine the downforce level. It would be as an engineer, you don't really want them to change the, the rules on you mid race, but um, that would be one way after, after the first practice, they could have a pretty good idea. Okay. Are we, are we in trouble here? Um, and I, I don't think they've ever reacted to that. So that would be one option. I think that the series could do if they wanted to really uh, improve the racing is to have a few optional pieces to add or, or to, to remove based on conditions. But otherwise, yeah, it's a pretty fine line. That's why it's been so hard for the series to get right. And, and the IndyCar group and Tino, they do a lot of work to to do it correctly. And unfortunately, it's just a it's a tough challenge. And it's you know it's very high risk. You know if you get it wrong, so they're really sensitive to that. Yeah, I guess it's it might sound simple for people just to say add twenty percent downforce, and it's a good suggestion, Kyle. I'm not criticizing it, but I, I guess there's complications there as well in terms of uh, you you want it to be. I guess what I'd call like clean downforce in the sense that you could go and add a load of downforce to the cars, but if you create turbulent air, then you're going to make the racing, you know, you're going to do the opposite of what you're intended to do there and make the racing worse as well, aren't you? And uh, I guess what we've seen with in, in recent years, we've seen kind of IndyCar bringing more parts to, to different races and, um, you know, different aerodynamic options, probably more so than we've had in the past in the sense that you can run something or you can not run something. It's optional. You can you can go with a, a package of of different stuff. But I guess that also kind of, you, you feel like maybe that potentially gives an advantage to some of the bigger teams as well who are able to, to test this stuff a little bit more and, and, you know, turn up with a little bit more, um, you know, they've got more resource to test this sort of stuff and they've got more people to actually crunch the numbers and actually go through all this kind of stuff. So I guess those are two things that you have to be quite careful about as well when you're talking about adding downforce. Yeah, and in the tires as well. So, you know, yeah. do a lot of work in the off-season with Firestone. Firestone builds tires to a certain spec and then they are hesitant to to change the spec because they're worried about the, the tire life and things like that. So it is, um, there's a lot of moving parts to it and it's um, it's tricky. Yeah, for sure. All right, we've got another question from uh, Marty as well. Uh, we'll jump back onto that. Uh, what are some things that an average IndyCar fan can assume are happening when we see damper changes going on during IndyCar practice? Um, and we've got in brackets natural terrain, road course, and temporary street course. So uh, we did quite a lot of dampers on in, in the last uh, technical um, special episode that we did with listeners' questions. So as I said at the start of the show, definitely pause now and go back if you don't uh, recall that or if you haven't listened to it yet. But um, yeah, Charlie, uh, we, we spoke a lot about 
just the general kind of like damper development that's going on in in the series generally in that episode and and how it kind of applies to the to the car setup but marty asks a really good question we didn't really go too much into detail of like how much of that is going on on a, an actual race weekend and how much is is happening there especially in things like practices so can you give us a bit of insight into that yeah, so like what the fans might see in the practice when they're taking the dampers off the car, there's a couple of things that might be happening. Um, they might be changing the dampers themselves to a different set, and usually it's a, a either a package of an axle or the whole car. And those would probably be dampers that were uh, built on the rig, uh, you know, on a six or seven post rig, and um, they want to try it as a package and say, okay, this is what we found at this track supposed to give us this and we'll try it either a balance change or overall grip improvement um, or they could be removing the dampers just to change springs so that there's um you know to change the springs on the cars you have to essentially uh unbolt the damper package so that's those are the two main things you'd see happen during the race and so there's a whole background to how that um that, that they come up with those settings but um but that's pretty much the two the two things that they'd be doing uh during the practice event and would you say like when you come to a, a practice is it a teams are they kind of going through a pre-arranged program where they're they are just running the dampers at, they're just making changes to the dampers to see how it impacts the setup uh, generally in like a pre-arranged way or is there a lot of also just adjustment going on in reaction to the conditions and the you know what's kind of happening live as opposed to having pre-arranged everything uh, it's de- yeah, it's definitely both, and it's okay. one thing the race engineer really has to um, to try to manage. You come into an event usually with a, a list of things that you want to try. Um, some of that is the expectation of what you think your car needs. So if you've been struggling with understeer the last time you were at that type of track, you might have some changes prepared to fight that understeer. Um, there's also just general development. So, you know, you have a, a rig test that tells you, that this type of damper package is going to give you more grip or a balance change. And you want to confirm that then basically, basically you'll, you'll have it in your test plan to try that set of dampers and see if it tells you what you want. So usually before the event, you have quite a few test items and you're like, this is what I want to learn during this event. And then after the first few runs, if the driver is like super unhappy or if you're 23rd in the, in the standings and, and uh, then you're, your direction can change pretty quickly and say, we've got to solve what the, the driver needs to go fast because we're in a race event. So it's, it's, and it's always managing that because if you, if you constantly uh, chase just instant results, uh, you don't learn as much and you might be changing more than one thing. So you're not sure exactly what it gave you, but you might say, okay, well, we're going to change three things that I know, if one of these is probably going to fix the issue because we got to get on with it and we got to get up the grid and we're qualifying, you know, this afternoon or whatever. But then at the end of the weekend, you say, well, we still don't know if those that damper package worked because we didn't try it or we put it on with with two other things at once. And and so it's a it's a that's a huge challenge. You're constantly sort of triaging this, and you have to have uh, some patience from the ownership or the driver sometimes to say, okay, well. I know this isn't going to be great for us right now, but we need to keep improving, keep learning. And that's that patience can be in short supply sometimes, depending on <laughs> how your year's gone or your relationship with those people. So. 
Yeah, and I guess that you're always having to keep in mind the conditions that you're you're testing things in as well in case things change because everything's so condition dependent as well. So I imagine that's a big challenge for you. You mentioned the the rig a few times there, and I, I thought we should maybe uh, touch on that because it's such a big part of the background of setting up an indie car and just generally kind of how you approach racing. And uh, I know some teams have their own, uh, some teams hire them out. Um, there's a few places in India that have got them that you can go and kind of hire those um, as opposed to like the the cost it takes to buy one initially and, and run it. Um, sometimes it's more cost effective to to rent one out. Do you want to run us through what they do and kind of like how they work and and, and why teams are using them? Because they, they are like, you know, we spoke about dampers and, and a little bit about wind tunnels and, and, and aero in the in the last episode, but it's probably the one thing we haven't spoken about that is such a key part of the series really, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, trying to unpack how these rigs work, I guess, just going back to the basic car system. So you've got, you know, a, the simplest kind of vehicle was like a go-kart. So it's got four wheels and it's solid. But if that's on a, a surface that's not level, then you get sort of a rocking like a four-legged table on an even surface. Yeah. And that's not great. And also just has no, uh, you know, every bump is felt by the driver. So the first thing you do is you put articulating suspension on each corner, but to, uh, you know, in order to, keep the body off the ground, you need something that's attached to the wheels. That's not rigid. So that's, you know, where, why a car needs springs to stay off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but springs, you know, their force is based on displacement. So if, if you hit a bump at the full displacement spring, it has the highest force. And then it, the velocity coming back will go straight through that zero point And it just oscillates and effectively it would oscillate forever. Um, if there weren't any, dam- any damping. And so, uh, you know, what engineers have come up with is a specific part that does all the damping or the majority of the damping. And, and because it does its uh, for- dampers has force based on velocity, when the spring's at its highest force, the velocity is zero and the damper has no force. And when you go through your zero point of your spring, the damper has a lot of force. So they're out of phase with each other. So you can tune them together to make the car settle quickly. So that's why those are the two main parts of the of any kind of vehicle system. Um, so there's two goals to keep the tires on the ground and keep the, the body from being disturbed because the body, if it gets disturbed, not only is it bad for the driver, but it also translates that to the other tires as well. So you get uh, disturbances on all four corners if the body's getting disturbed. Um, and I was watching this past weekend, uh, there was a Supercross race at San Francisco and I was watching him go over the whoops um, and I think if you don't know what whoops are, that you've probably seen them. They're um, sort of just equally spaced and equal height bumps in a in a row, and dirt bikes go over them. And it's really it's it's really interesting because they they need to keep the back tire on the ground as much as possible so they can maintain their speed or even accelerate through these whoops. And if you watch their head, like their head kind of stays in the same position, and the bike's going all over all over the place. And, <laughs> and basically what they're doing is, is actively keeping that back tire on the ground and trying to keep their head as level as possible. And it's very much like what you want from a car. You want to keep the tires on the ground and you want to keep the body sort of flat as it goes over those bumps. And the, the motocross guys can do that them, you know, actively with their throttle and their body and everything. And, but IndyCar drivers pretty much just along for the ride, they can't really do much <laughs> about it. So, um, but that's a good sort of analogy for what the, the, uh, six and seven post tests do because you have, so in a, in a whoops, you have these, 
um, bumps that are equally spaced, and that would be the frequency of, of the bumps, and they're about equal height, which is the amplitude. And you might think, well, that's pretty basic, but roads are sort of random, and they're they're not like that. But actually, you can take a road profile like a roughness index of a road, and you can see, you know, es essentially what the most common amplitude and frequency of the bumps are, and it's going to be a, a range, right? Um, but what you can do with that information is you can go on what's called a six post rig, a four poster for the tires and two would be for the body front and rear. So you can apply arrow loads and you can put those, uh, basically a sign sweep of differing amplitudes and frequencies, uh, which is called a chirp. So it's like a variety of, um, of those all in one. And you put that into the, into the wheat, into the tires or the, or the wheel hubs, depending on how you're set up. And then you can see how the car behaves over that whole spectrum of uh, road profile that you might encounter. And if you do that and you, you tune the car, um, tune the dampers and springs, it gets you about 90% of the way there. It gets you a car that's really good over a variety of bumps, all the different types of bumps that you'll experience on a typical track. Um, but unfortunately, the whole grid's 90% of the way there already. So that just gets you sort of in the window. And then what you can do there from there is you can add another post to the, to the rig. So make it a seven post and you can uh, then roll the car and you can put a track replay into the, into the hubs. And so now you're going over the actual bumps that the car is going to experience on all four corners and you can, you know, further tune the, the dampers um, for that. Uh, like if you're driving so the car in a simulator, but the rig kind of simulates what the road's going to be like for the car. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty, um, it's a, it's a really good way to understand that. Uh, and you're looking at two things, really the body behavior and the contact patch loads variation. So that are the tires stay on the ground and how consistently is the force of the contact patch, because the driver is going to drive to sort of the max that the average, not the, uh, or the minimum, not the maximum. So, um, but the, the main takeaway there is you're still just like in the whoops, you're not turning, you're still going straight effectively, even yeah. though it's a track you play, you're not concerned about the car balance at all. You're just trying to keep the car on the road. And so that's a whole, um, that's why, you know, you put these dampers on and you might have a lot better road holding, but the balance of the car has changed. And now you need to tune the car to uh, the new supposedly better package. And that takes time and patience, like I said, which isn't always in, in high supply in IndyCar. But, uh, but yeah, so um, that's basically what those rigs exist for. Penske has one. Um, there's one in Indy that's at ARC, which a lot of teams use. Olin's has one um, as well. So there's, they're pretty easy to get time on. But what most teams have done now is, is created a virtual rig. So they'll they'll do all that in simulation and they'll just go to the rig to validate their simulation. And then you can run uh, these track replays just all the time, even during the race. Yeah. So it's pretty, um, pretty cool. Is there any um, aero considerations to keep in mind there as well? Because I, I guess you can't turn the car through a corner on a, on a rig, as, as you said, but I, I guess sometimes you're trying to work out, you're trying to keep the car level and maximize the aerodynamic efficiency of the car as well. Is that something, a uh, a shaker rig can help with or is it kind of irrelevant based on the fact that you're not doing the turning and you're not doing you know bits of that as well um there's definitely an aero component to it part of the body control that 
is good. That I didn't mention is the aerodynamic effect of that body and especially on cars that have underfloor aero. So it, with the seven post, you can apply aero loads, static ones, or you can have your aero map in the rig. And, you know, in theory, even things like porpoising and things would show up there. Um, they don't like you saw an F1 there's, they didn't expect it. So it's not as easy as it sounds, but, but yeah, you want to keep the, the body control, uh, for the aerodynamic purposes. And you also, uh, you want to run as low as possible on the straights in areas where you're, and so you're into the third springs, which we haven't even mentioned yet, but <laughs> those have an impact on the ride of the car as well. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a consideration on a car like this, but most of what's being done in these rig tests is for mechanical grip purposes, but you have to keep those other things in mind so you don't damage the, the performance of the other areas too much by what you're trying to do. All right, Charlie, so you mentioned F1 and Porpoise in there. Um, I've got a question for you. What are the kind of engineering priorities of F1 versus IndyCar and how does that kind of, how does that kind of whole approach approach work in, in terms of how you go about IndyCar racing compared to F1? Yeah, we sort of touched that a little bit in the last pod and it's, I think it's a pretty important um, difference because uh, of, you know, you see a lot of Formula One people, not a lot, but a few key personnel coming from Formula One and the McLaren coming from Formula One and, and tackling IndyCar and it's not, you'd think with their resources, they just come in and dominate, but it's not quite so simple. Now, you know, really the, the main difference is the the development, what's allowed to be developed. Uh, and that, and that dictates sort of the role that people take, um, in what they spend their money on, what they have people focusing on. So in F1, for example, you can, you can develop a brand new car if you want, even if you wanted to do that mid season, you come out with a new car, as far as I know, I guess you have track crash testing and things like that, but they can, ch they can change almost everything on the car if, if they choose to. And so all your time is really, trying to understand uh, what what the key performance items of the car are. And usually it's aerodynamics in Formula One. So in, in, instead of really trying to understand your aerodynamic package perfectly um, and doing a whole bunch of testing and correlation projects on, on what you have now, you're better off creating something new. And so that then that's why you see teams constantly bringing developments to the track because they can get half a second with a good development item and maybe understanding their current item can get them one or two tenths, but the other teams will get half a second in that time by replacing it. <laughs> so unless you're really budget limited, which uh, with the cost cap formula one teams are going to have to think a little bit more about wringing everything out of what they have, which is going to mm. be interesting, but basically you're just, you're just trying to make a new widget constantly. And the other thing with formula one is it's very simulation driven. Um, because they, you know, they have to develop a brand new car before it hits the track, essentially. So that it needs to be pretty close. But also their simulation is constantly being validated because they keep bringing new parts to the track and they're checking the simulation results. And if it's wrong, they fix their simulation and they keep going. And they're constantly uh, correlating their simulation through the normal process of how they operate. Uh, and the simulation also uh, you know, the parts they have are pretty big magnitude. So they're half a second parts or something. Um, that's big enough for a simulation to capture pretty well on the IndyCar side, you have the same car, you're going to the same tracks and you're really just trying to tweak the same things. 
Um, so you, you, you can't develop new parts. So what you really have to do is understand what you have really, really well. Um, and even to the point of how it performs in different ambient conditions and track temperatures and, and the different types of tires you have and things like that. Um, so you have to really focus on these minute details where F1 team would never put the resources into that because that part's going to re be replaced in four months anyway. <laughs> uh, so that's yeah. a pretty important thing. And, and then an IndyCar simulation is really big as well, but the, the challenge with simulation in IndyCar is you don't have a lot of opportunities to correlate it because um, like I said, the, there's this demand constantly to, to be performing and doing projects that are just for correlation are almost impossible. Um, you will get occasional opportunities to do a, a proper like ABA test on something. But even then, you might be looking at the gain of something like a tenth of a second, which in a simulation that doesn't get a lot of correlation opportunities is really hard to uh, to understand that level of fidelity in, in the simulation. So you have a simulation that needs to be much more accurate than in Formula One, and you get less opportunities to make it accurate and obviously less resources as well. So it's a, it's a big challenge. And I think when people come from formula one, they think we've got to get our simulation going we've got to get our simulation better. And I think, and I agree with that hundred percent, but they're finding it very difficult because the opportunities to, to correlate it are, are, are almost always uh, in direct conflict with trying to perform on that particular weekend or that particular time of year. And, and then the, the margins you're working in are so small that it's, it's a real challenge. And there's a lot of, you know, I've, I've tried to come up with simulation programs and Zach at Yonkos was, was doing a really good job with ours and, and we both got put to the side because it, we weren't getting immediate results. So it's, um, that's the fight you're constantly fighting in, in IndyCar. And, and I think when people come from F1, it's like, it's eye opening because they, they realize how difficult the challenge is to do to replicate the what f1 teams do and money doesn't necessarily solve it it's um it's kind of a fundamental challenge that everyone's facing but if you can get it right then you're gonna it's gonna pay dividends for a long time especially when the car stays the same for so long i mean there's stuff that i built in 2011 that i can still use today you know <laughs> uh, so that's another reason thing that would never happen in f1 right but uh, but yeah so very different challenges i think so it's, it's a very interesting one for people that are crossing over yeah and I, I guess there's probably so some of the things that are outside of an indycar team's control are usually in the formula one team's control in the sense that if you think about what is variable in indycar then you know the the one that always stands out obviously to me was 2022 and chevrolet brought that drivability upgrade and there's, I'm sure there's an element of Chevrolet speaking to Penske about what they're working on and how they anticipate that it will impact things. But those are the kind of things that, unless you're a customer in Formula One, you know, you're probably working on those in-house or there's an element of better understanding of what those things might be before they come rather than, you know, rocking up at St. Pete in 2022 and suddenly all the Chevrolet teams are like, wow, this is good. <laughs> well, <laughs> instead of... You know, and, and in a lot of ways might have been bad for some of the Chevy teams that, that didn't anticipate what that upgrade was going to be like because they've done a load of development in the off-season and anticipating the car to behave in a certain way and then they rock up and it's different. So uh, I guess there's there's a lot more cohesion in the way Formula 1 goes about things in that sense as well. Yeah, for sure, especially compared to a factory team. Um, there's Things can throw a wrench in your efforts like that. Um, not that that was a bad thing at all. It was a great thing that uh, should be brought to the yeah. table, but you'd be happy to have it. 
but it can impact what you're trying to accomplish correlation wise. And you don't have as much information necessarily. Like if you want to simulate that, you might not have the information that you need to simulate it. And Chevy's not uh, willing to share it. Not the Chevy's a great partner for their teams, but you know, it, it takes them effort to create tools for simulation too, whereas they could be working. Well, yeah, so sure. it's a resource issue for them. And um, yeah, it's, Anything that changes, the tracks change, the tires change, uh, and oftentimes you don't have a, a lot of clear information about that, then sometimes you're starting starting over in some ways on your correlation, which is which is tough. Yeah. I know both the engine manufacturers are working super hard on the simulation side of things, especially, and Chevrolet has that semi-new facility in Charlotte, and Honda are always putting a lot into their... Um, into their HPD simulator in, in California as well. Um, I remember Fernando Alonso being very impressed by that, which was a, a big boost for, for HPD at the time, having someone come over from Formula One and appreciate the, the simulation tools. That's a, a very good sign for, for IndyCar. Charlie, I'm, I'm conscious that we've interrogated you for an hour and a half over these last two episodes. Uh, is there anything else you want to kind of get off your chest or, or add to? I know um, you felt like maybe there was a little, well, we could do 15 episodes on dampers alone, couldn't we, between us? Um, but I know there were some areas that we didn't quite cover in the last episode that we can get to if, with dampers that you can maybe fill us in on a little bit. Um, no, I think we covered pretty well. I just say, um, I think you mentioned in the last pod, you know, how does that affect the team's setup philosophy, what damper package they run, and just hmm. to touch on that a little bit. Um, you know, like I said, you might come up with a really good road handling package and, and then you find that it changes your balance. So you have to work on that. Um, and there's, there's a few options. You can use the differential is a good one, but a lot of teams are sort of at the limit of opening that up. Uh, roll centers are good, but um, with the aero screen, a lot of teams are at the, the the highest roll center or close to it now. So we're having less options than we used to. And the roll bars are good uh, and they're a little bit open as well. Um, but yeah, so that's why like when you have different teams and drivers changing teams and things like that, you'd think with a spec car, you could just replicate whatever they like, but you know, the damper package really affects the balance of the car. And in the, in the, in the end balance is more important than grip. You need to, if you add grip at an axle, that's already has too much, it's not, it's not going to make you any faster. So, you know, I think that's <laughs> the, the main thing, even though we talk a lot about road holding is, is that these damper packages um, have a big effect on the rest of the car because they change the balance and um, and that's what makes that's the biggest differentiator between teams at the moment. And when drivers swap teams and and struggle or or prefer a team, like even if like Romain goes to a from us, he seemed like he was happier at a team with less resources, but it seemed to to suit his um, his driving style a little bit more. So I think that's probably the biggest takeaway for people if they want to understand kind of why that happens. It's often comes down to the the dampers and how they're choosing to keep the car on the ground basically so yeah i spoke to mike chank recently and he was saying that he felt like we were getting to the point where kind of everyone's worked for every team and it, that's obviously an exaggeration like uh, not everyone has worked for every team but there's enough people moving around that all of this kind of information and data has has kind of got around to a point where everyone kind of roughly knows what everyone's doing it's just a case of how that's all added together basically and obviously there's a few little things that some of the teams are doing behind the scenes that people maybe don't know but on on the whole engineers and mechanics kind of know roughly what each of the teams are doing and and what their kind of focuses are maybe but based on based on what you've said it's not that simple because 
it's it's an equation at the end of the day. Like you might know what the other teams are doing, but just taking a piece of what Penske's doing isn't necessarily just going to fix your car and make it um, you know make it so much better. And then you've got to take into account the how comfortable the driver is with that as well, and then being able to maximise what you've what you've given them. It's a it's a really complicated thing, even though it sounds quite straightforward on on the face of it, isn't it? Yeah, there's definitely a difference between knowing kind of roughly what a team's doing and, and replicating that. You know, there's definitely things that, you know, I, I know some philosophy behind what we were doing at Yonkos, but if I wanted to go and, and recreate that, uh, I wouldn't have all the pieces of the puzzle. And, and then also having the resources to do that as well, you might know, okay, well, they're doing something totally different, but do we, do we start from scratch at this other team and try to replicate that? Or is the path we're on with those same resources going to give us something better? So um, I think he's, you know, Shank's probably right. There's, there's a lot of people would say, yep, I know Andretti's got this philosophy. I know Coin has this philosophy, but it doesn't mean you can just replicate that on track successfully. So it's still, even though there's a lot of movement and there's a lot of vague understanding of what teams are sort of working on, it's, it's not the same as being able to put it on your car and especially in a short period of time. So, yeah. Charlie, thanks so much for your insight. We really appreciate it. We know we've worked you hard over these past uh, episode and a half so or so, so thank you so much. Um, we, we've definitely enjoyed getting into some of your listeners' questions. So if you want to send us any more questions, you can. You can email us, podcasts at thehyphenrace.com. You can also reach out to any of us on social, JR, Charlie as well, and, and myself, we're all on social media. So you can reach out there and ask us any questions that you have as well. If you've got any uh, emerging questions about IndyCar as the season gets underway, which isn't isn't too far away now. Make sure you check out the-race.com as well for all of your latest features, news and information about IndyCar and all of the other series that we cover over at the race. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. The Athletic.